This is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. Maria, before we dive into this week's episode of Bad Town, what kind of hot goss do you have? Well, it's pretty exciting. The city is building a new temporary tiny home village to shelter people over the winter. 25 tiny homes will be going into the parking lot over by Civic Field. This work is being done by Homes Now in partnership with the city. If you're looking for a charitable organization to contribute to this holiday season, I would definitely give them a look, as well as our local food bank. I have a $25 monthly donation to the food bank, and the president personally called to thank me. It was very sweet. So if you want a call from the president, you should donate some money. I also wanted to state that we are aware of the controversy surrounding Homes Now that happened last year, specifically surrounding the founder who was caught embezzling money from his organization. But Doug, who is now in charge, is doing amazing work and always has and is going above and beyond to ensure transparency, uh, specifically in their financial reportings. On a more festive note, don't forget to fill your stockings with local treats to give a boost to our wonderful businesses. Candies from Evolve, coffee from Maniac, Tony's and Camber, beer and merch from other breweries, and uh, gift cards to all of your favorite restaurants. That's definitely what I would want for Christmas. Somebody tell Brandon. (laughs) Did we mention that we have two new patrons on our Patreon? A special shout out to Scott Rice and Heather Thorson. People we're not related to. That's awesome. (laughs) Yes. And of course, another shout out to our OG patron, Kim Rice. We will be adding more Patreon content this week. So Maria, what are we learning about this week? This week, we are learning more about the butcher that got butchered, specifically the most prolific suspect in the case, Whatcom County's serial killer and murder farm operator. That's right, murder farm operator, a man by several names, but we will call him Romandorf. That's coming right up on this week's episode of Bad Town. Last week, you left us hanging in the case of the butchered butcher. I think you were just about to tell us about a suspect in that case that popped up years later after a string of murders happened in Maple Falls. Yeah, exactly. So if you guys recall, the case of the butcher, Frederick Dames, went dormant after a number of leads went nowhere. But five years later, a man named Frank Romendorf from Maple Falls was in the news for a series of brutal and unrelated murders beginning in November of 1909, and whose trial had been in the news uh, pretty heavily in January of 1910. Was this the killer we've been looking for the whole time? What did he, what did he do? Hmm, well, we're not sure. We're going to get into that. (laughs) Um, He did lots of stuff, though. Frank Romandorf, (laughs) terrible things. So Frank Romandorf, as he went by, at the time of that all this went down. He was from Maple Falls. Shocker. I know if you are familiar with Maple Falls, it's like, do you know where Maple Falls is? It's like you're going up to Mount Baker. You're almost to Glacier. It's like Kendall, Peaceful Valley area in there. 
Oh, yes. I did several student teachings up in that yeah. area. It's it's an interesting place. A little dark, a little, a little shady. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. There was descriptions of like bear fights there where they'd keep a freaking bear in a cage and then and then drunk men would go out and, and, and wrestle with these black bears. I think it's like a dark place with a dark past. That's how I picture Maple Falls. Not a lot of sunlight Basically. hitting those folks. <laughs> right? People they are need some vitamin D. Out in Maple Falls. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. So, <laughs> so that's where Romandorf lives with his wife Margaret and his supposedly son Ed and two daughters on what the newspapers later referred to as a murder farm. <laughs> The Maple Falls Murder Farm, as we like to say. So it all started on a dark and spooky evening in Maple Falls. Uh, this big rainstorm blows through. And the next morning, Romandorf's neighbor, James Logan, is for some reason missing. A lot of people assumed he had been swept away in the river during the storm, but his boots and glasses were still in his house. So probably unless he wandered out barefoot without his glasses, probably not the case. And right after this, Romandorf, the neighbor, left town on business and uh, didn't come back. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, Romandorf had assumed Logan's identity and started a new life for himself um, in eastern Washington. He bought property and he even hired a housekeeper who just happened to have a rather large inheritance coming to her, which was convenient for him. Uh, so he was like, hey, housekeeper Agnes Jansen, do you want to marry me? And she's like, oh, I do. And so they plan a wedding trip. And while they're on their way on their wedding trip, they're trudging along in their wagon. He's like, oh, I'm lost. It's getting dark. We better pull over here. So fast forward a little bit. He's built a very large fire on the side of the road where he pulled over. Two local men come up to see why there's this ginormous bonfire happening. And he's like, oh, I'm just lost camping here for the night. And guess what? He was alone. The men thought it was a little weird that he had such a giant fire, but they left. And of course, then what <laughs> weird, <laughs> right? <laughs> really? So they did come back the next day. They're like, that was weird. Let's go see what what was going on with that guy's fire. They go back over there and they poke through the ashes and find metal corset stays and an engagement ring. This is reportedly attached to a skeleton hand <laughs> that crumbles when they touch it. There's definitely some kind of crime suspected here. And the police are now on the lookout for this guy under the description of Romandorf. And he was actually caught and apprehended while he was trying to cash in, guess what, Agnes's inheritance by forging documents as her husband. So he gives the name Logan at the time. He's still going under this member, the disappeared neighbor, <laughs> Logan's name. So he's going under Logan's name. And pictures circulate around with law enforcement, and they looking for information on this guy they've captured, who they think is James Logan. And it pretty quickly comes to light that it's not James Logan. It's this guy, Frank Romandorf, from Maple Falls. <laughs> who happens to be James Logan's neighbor. So pretty quickly, the whole murder of Agnes Jansen gets unraveled and Romandorf slash Logan is sent to Walla Walla State Pen to await execution for her murder. He denied it 
and then admitted it and back and forth several times <laughs> and occasionally tried to pretend like he was nuts. And during his time in the pen, we find out all kinds of weird things about him, including that his name is not even actually Romendorf. His birth name was Friedrich Johns, and he's a German. So there's an article from right before the Herald decided he was connected to the Dame story that describes him. And this is from the actually the Colville Examiner in, in eastern Washington, and it says, his silvery locks lend more of an air of benevolence to his German features, and a pair of knowing eyes gleam brightly from beneath heavy eyebrows as he becomes interested in a conversation. It also describes a visit by a preacher to Logan, in which Logan was like, I don't want your sympathy or your spiritual assistance. And he was quoted as saying, I would a thousand times rather risk my life and property with the worst convicts of any nation than among some others out of jail, particularly lawyers and some preachers. So he condemns churches and he goes on and on. The article also states he's traveled all over the world. He worked in gold mines of East Africa. He claimed he served in the Boer War, which is an African thing that the timelines just don't add up with his, his story. So he claimed a lot of things, that he had been in an Asian caravan and revolutions in South and Central America, on and on. Clearly, he's just, excuse my French, but he's effing with everybody here. He's just making stuff up at this point. And also, the article, writer of the article kind of marvels at his certainty that uh, at the beginning of his trial that he would not be convicted. and he would regain his freedom. They speculated, you know, that he had tons of money that only he knew about, that he had hidden away somewhere. He was an interesting guy, full of mysteries. So he sounds like a really, really great guy, you know, <laughs> thinks he's smarter than everyone, silvery locks, bushy eyebrows. <laughs> yeah, wait till you see his picture. How did he get connected to the Dames case from five years ago? Or not five years ago, but five years before this whole thing. Right. So Dames is murdered five years before any of this comes to light. And like we said, I mean, these are unrelated murders, though brutal and disgusting murders nonetheless. Um, but in 1910, on February 13th, the Herald announces Dames murder mystery solved. Romendorf killed Elk Street Butcher. And the reports, there were reports that they were friends. And they had both come from the same locality in Germany and had known each other for several years in Bellingham um, and that they had quarreled over a meat delivery to Romendorf by dames. The altercation in the butcher shop in which Romendorf was ejected, he was also seen in the city the night of the murder. This all this information doesn't come to light until five years later when all of this, you know, starts making the news about the Agnes Jansen Logan murders. So. There's no suspects at the time, but all of a sudden we're like, people are like, hmm, yeah, actually, you know what? I think I saw Romendorf in that guy's butcher shop and they were arguing, you know, and so all of these exciting stories come out about how Romendorf was probably in that butcher shop. The story goes from one of the witnesses is that Romendorf was seen in Dames's butcher shop the day before the murder 
And he and Dames were arguing loudly in German, and but nobody knew what they were arguing about. They couldn't understand it. And so as Romendorf goes to leave the butcher shop, Dames throws a butcher knife across the room, narrowly missing Romendorf's head. <laughs> so, I mean, you would think that that kind of suspicion would have come to light um, in the first place. Yeah, you think somebody would have remembered saying something like that. But we're going to go with it. <laughs> um, but although, you know, when Romendorf is being questioned, when he's admitting and then recanting admissions to all of these murders, he never, ever mentions Dames or the Butcher. The Herald, you know, concluded that this case was solved. And that's probably because, you know, I'm sure you can imagine the citizens of Bellingham were just a little bit uneasy thinking that this axe murderer might still be on the loose that had butchered this guy uh, five years ago. So when Romendorf is brought in for all these brutal murders, it's like, okay, we're eager here to pin this on this guy too. So we can't be sure. It does, you know, sound like something that Romendorf would do. And we'll give you some more evidence in that, in that direction. But again, a little fishy. Okay. So we know he has Logan and Agnes. He's killed them for sure. He's possibly killed this butcher, but maybe not. It's up in the air. However, you did use the term murder farm, <laughs> which makes me wonder if there's a lot more people. <laughs> there are. Yeah, exactly. It's, you know, not those two stories alone. And um, the pieces of this puzzle kind of begin to come together in the 1940s, actually. When this curious criminologist from the Washington State Attorney General picked up the case and began doing some investigations of his own. And in his search, he found retired Bellingham detective Thomas DeHaven, who agreed to be interviewed about him. So from those interviews, we, we get a few more interesting details, which surprisingly didn't come out or make the news. I'm not sure, Colby, maybe you can confirm or deny that but apparently well what we know is that Romendorf moved to Maple Falls somewhere around 1903 after a scrape with the law in Nebraska where he was doing some cattle rustling confirmed that's where his wife's family is from right and yes okay <laughs> confirmed according to DeHavens um, Romendorf's nephew Ed Romendorf yeah so they are saying nephew in this. Ed is also referred to as Frank's son in different circumstances. So Ed arrives shortly after Frank, whoever he is. And it's at this point that the Romandorfs kind of begin to hire help. And the story goes that they're kind of hiring help from these working agencies in Seattle. And they're always avoiding hiring local people. According to this detective, Romendorf had always insisted that his workers never leave the property, but at least on two occasions, workers did leave, and they found their way into Maple Falls to air their grievances about Romendorf and the terrible working conditions, and in those two instances, broken financial promises, where Romendorf is promising that he's going to give them money or... He has a deed to their property or he's going to help them clear land, but he's like going back on it and just kind of forcing them into this like labor situation. And by the way, they they complain about like the terrible food and, you know, disgusting 
places to sleep and things like that. So those two men, they make it into Maple Falls, they air their grievances, and, um, and then they say, they tell witnesses that they're going to go back to the farm and collect their pay or what have you. And then they're never heard from again. Um, one of those men, when he made his way back into Maple Falls, he did report to police, apparently, that Ed Romandorf, son or nephew, <laughs> had tried to kill him by trying to push him into a, a shingle saw. Wow. Okay. So it seems like Murder Farm is not too far off after <laughs> all. So thank goodness this guy was all the way in Walla Walla, but that can't be the end of the story. What happens to this guy? Right. Well, he's sentenced to hang <laughs> by the neck until dead, as it was said at the time. Meanwhile, he's in Walla Walla awaiting hanging, right? He tells a lot of people he knows that he's been busy for months writing the story of his life. And he's like, I have this huge manuscript and it's all written in code that no one can decipher. And he will leave a key among his belongings in case he should hang. While he was there, he tried to get his sentence commuted. He wrote letters to the governor trying to say, you know, this is all a conspiracy concocted against me. It's all fabricated. But then in March of 1911, another corpse was found connected to him. It was a man named Shively who was found buried in a trunk stuffed into sawdust and an old abandoned mill in Colville County. That one scares me so much. That one's creepy too. I wonder if we should talk about that. I don't know if that interrupts your flow too much, Colby, but if you want to talk about it, go for it. That This one, yeah, like I said, creeps me out the most. And he was actually, they were doing some business deal, I guess, and, and Romandorf, um, I guess Logan at this point, says, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll buy, you know, your property from you or whatever. And he's like, well, we'll, we'll meet at this hotel or inn or something and we'll, you know, exchange the deed and I'll give you, give you the money. And what ends up happening is Romandorf Logan gets the money and then you know, bashes him over the head and drugs him and puts him in a trunk and sends his body back to Colville to be buried in this trunk. I, and the story goes that he's he's put on the on the train, and then Romandorf Logan tells his his ranch hands, you know, don't uh, don't open it, don't ask questions, just bury it for me. And apparently, that's what they dig up. Yeah. Uh, another thing that's interesting about Romandorf Logan, whatever the hell his name is is that when he was in Nebraska, he he worked as an engraver and he learned like a lot of artistry around, you know, um, making engravings and beautiful writing and signatures. So he he basically became an expert at forgery. And so a lot of his crimes involved killing people and then forging their names for deeds for property or money and things like that which was definitely the case with Shively also. So yeah, the governor's like, yeah, nope, you're going to hang. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no pardon for you. And he was executed by hanging on April 21st, 1911. Ren, do you want to talk about, isn't there something about like the hanging, some details about that? Yeah, so what I've heard about the hanging, interestingly, the, the gallows at Walla Walla they were made as twin gallows. So they're, they're two together. And they were actually made in order to hang two 
brothers, I think, or relatives who had committed heinous crimes together. So the big plan at Walla Walla was to, you know, build this fancy new gallows and then hang them at the same time. You know, again, there's there's no Hulu back in these days. So this was the grand entertainment of the time. And everybody came out to witness. But then when they hung them, they there was some technical difficulties at the gallows. And they ended up having to hang these guys like 10 minutes apart anyway. Because one of the gallows didn't work. That's the story I've heard. But once Romendorf is there, anyway, we have the gallows and Romendorf is being prepared, you know, to, to hang. And some some gallows trivia that I like to tell on my tours is that, you know, there's there's all kinds of mathematics and things involved. But, um, you know, you have to have the right length of rope in order to hang the right weight of body, right? It has to be the right length or it won't actually do the job if it's too short or too long. I'll let you imagine that. And so while they're waiting for Romendorf to be hanged, he's going crazier and crazier and he stops eating. And so he's rapidly losing weight. And the story that I've heard is that he's losing so much weight that they have to delay the hanging as they're trying to figure out the right length of the rope. But by the time they do it, he's just like barely, barely in one piece. Yeah trippy right yeah and washington i think no longer has death penalty if my if i'm remembering there's been a moratorium yeah Yeah. um but so there's an interesting history with the death penalty here and what types of death penalty were allowed and yeah hanging's a pretty brutal way to go so uh he maintained his innocence to the end and you know papers and law enforcement were disappointed that he didn't confess or shed any light on a lot of mysteries that they were hoping could be cleared up if he spilled his beans at the end. And letters were sent from the prison chaplain to uh, his his daughter, um, letting her know that he departed from this life, uh, that he was with him, and he did his best to cheer and comfort him in his hour of trouble. And that he left paper of instructions behind, which is not clear whether that was the weird coded letter. (laughs) But um, the weird coded letter was sent after the hanging in a few days after, was sent to the Secret Service, hoping that they could decode it. And um, about a month later, they sent it back and were like, no, we're sorry. We regret very much. We cannot translate this. Because it's gobbledygook. (laughs) But that didn't stop people for years from trying to translate it and coming to the same conclusion. Romandorf's daughters in 1919, so just a few years later, they both petitioned to change their names. The mother, Margaret, his wife, uh, remarried pretty quickly to a man named Peter Olson and she never had any more children, but they lived out their days in Maple Falls, and she's buried there. And the two daughters, uh, Marjorie and Bessie, Bessie, thank you, are buried at Bayview. They never had children. Um, they both died within a few years of each other in the late 30s, early 40s, and they're both buried together in Bayview Cemetery. The weird outlier is the son slash nephew slash whatever he is. Yeah, Ed. 
who just disappears from the records. And honestly, this whole family had to know what was going on with Roman Dorf slash John slash Logan the whole time. Like there's so many instances of them basically like quickly moving one town to another. And I mean, there's just too many things like they whether they were, you know, sort of coerced into being quiet and just going along with it or whether they were like actively in on it all. It's hard to say, but it was definitely not Frank acting alone. Interesting stuff. Yes, very interesting stuff. So what do you guys think? Do you think that he really did kill the butcher? I kind of think that maybe he could have if somebody really saw him in the butcher shop. Although it's a little bit suspicious, like you said. Well, what do you do you want to go first, Ren, or do you want me to? I have opinions. You have an opinion? Yeah, I'm interested to hear your opinion. I have I have pretty solid opinions. I feel like it's not <laughs> you always do. <laughs> it's not James. <laughs> I do. Sorry. Um <laughs> I I just I don't feel like it's Dames's MO, you know, or I mean Romandorf's MO to kill Dames. Right. Because he was really he was very he wasn't just a crazy psycho killer who brutally butchered people. I mean, his murders were horrible, but they were very calculated in how he offed people in order to get their land, their money. He had this whole plan. He did it in a way where he could conceal things and what had done. He assumed different identities. He was it was all like so calculated, you know, whereas the crime against dames just seemed like such a crime of passion something that you know was just so brutal and almost like careless in the way it's kind of amazing that nobody was caught for it because it just seems so brutal like there should have been some some blood on someone's shirt or something like that do we know if anyone did stand to benefit at all from the butcher being killed like to who like who inherited his shop afterwards or Anything like that? He had a sister um, who they found, and she hadn't heard from him in 20 years. And she was actually pretty stoked that he had an estate that she was going to inherit. But, you know, it wasn't like she knew anything about it. It's actually a little bit up for question whether her mother, who was the aged blind mother she she was taking care of, which is said to be Dames's mother as well. It could have been his stepmother kind of unclear but anyway it was his sister or at least half sister that they tracked down and found she was his only living relative and she was taking care of a blind elderly woman and could use the money so whatever dames had went to her it's probably a good thing there didn't seem to be any reason to suspect her in the crime as she was completely shocked and didn't know he was even still alive so, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot, you know, a lot of mystery in between his time leaving home and why he was such a loner. You know, he was in the Civil War. Did he make enemies there? I I don't, honestly, I don't think Romandorf was the enemy. I mean, some people try to make that connection because they're both German and blah, blah, blah. But I I can't find anything that puts them in a timeline together other than maybe right before the murder 
And it just still, even if it was just like, oh, you ordered bad meat and you cursed me out and kicked me out of your butcher shop, like, I just don't feel like Romendorf would would go there in that way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think I totally agree with your perspective, Colby, because it, it does not match any of the other like MOs, which is that he kind of bludgeoned somebody and then, you know, he, yeah. he kind of quietly killed them first and then disposed of them in really dark and twisted ways. But um, yeah, not bloody. But I mean, the guy was clearly unhinged. So, right. you know, but, I mean, so was Weatherford. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I mean, and there was this thing, this the you know the dope beans and the opium addicts. It's like, yeah. I mean, that. and and there <laughs> to me, there was a lot of evidence between Weatherford and those two other guys who all lived in shacks, and they were all suspects in that beginning. So, I, I don't know. I lean towards them over anybody else, but also I think it could just be a random outlier, but. I mean, I don't know, like, why would Weatherford, crazy or not, you know, have this story in his mind that he kept repeating? And to me, it seems like he either hung out, was part of it, heard it, something, which points to me to those, like, hobo shack situations. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's still a mystery, you guys. That's my opinion. It's unsolved. It's an unsolved crime. I just feel like we're ignoring the the party with the most amount of resentment, which would be all of the animals that were butchered. <laughs> Vengeful cow yes, spirits. Yes, I think maybe it's the woman, the spirits. We need to talk to her, clearly. Yeah, the cow spirits, too. You know, like, just pour one out when you go to the red light bar for the for the cows. <laughs> so, if you have any information on this 110-year-old cold case, Please make sure to contact Colby and Ren because I'm sure they'd love to finally have an answer to this decades-long mystery. Yeah, you're a spirit. You can reach out. But I think with that, we're going to say good night to our beautiful friends, the Good Time Girls, and give them a big thank you for this fabulous two-parter. Aww, you're so welcome. Thank you. That was so fun. You're very welcome. Sleep tight. Let's get into our final and favorite segment, Local Treasures. In this part of the show, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drink, or otherwise consumed that fills us with local pride. What's your pick this week, Annika? My local treasure this week is Brazen Shop and Studio downtown. I I stopped by there for some awesome Christmas gifts. It's a great place uh, to get gifts for anyone this holiday season. Um, There's really awesome jewelry, bags tea towels, wallets, just a lot of really cool pieces. My local treasure this week is the, well, I have three. I couldn't pick. They were all good. Royal Tannenbaum Holiday Ale from Kolschen is a special beer release. If you, like me, are a big fan of piney flavors like juniper and rosemary, this beer, I think it's actually brewed with some Christmas tree parts. (laughs) It tastes like tree um, in like the best way possible. It's so good. It's it's really earthy and woody and sweet um, and super different, but really, really amazing. Um, we also enjoyed the Successor Hazy from Twin Sisters. They are canning now, which is awesome. Good for them. And you can find their beer in stores now. So make sure to pick up a six pack. And my final pick is the romantic takeout dinner that I ordered from Saltine. 
We got uh, lasagna and some prosciutto chicken with garlic mashed potatoes and this like amazing pear frise salad with hazelnuts, pomegranate arils, and honey mustard dressing. Perfect with a bottle of wine to make our Friday night a little bit special. So thank you so much to all four wonderful businesses for making our weeks amazing. All right. I think that about wraps things up. What are we learning about next week, Annika? Next week, we are learning about some more recent Bad Town tales from the 80s, from serial killer bar lore to a freaky unsolved case. Oh, this is going to be good. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from The Good Time Girls for being incredible season two co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week. Bye.